The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, striving this week as every week to be your public radio source for the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Today's question and answer day on Real Life Real Estate, as is the case on most of the uh, last Wednesdays of every month. And what that means is I came in here without a guest, without anything prepared, except for questions that folks had already sent to me at askvina at gmail.com. And if you have any questions whatsoever, uh, today is the day to ask them. That may say it a different way. Any questions whatsoever about real estate or real estate investing? If it is meaning of life, your guess is as good as mine. But real estate investing questions, you can call them in at 877-772-9658. You can also uh, send them via email to askvena at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V-E-N-A at gmail.com. You can actually send questions throughout the month to that email address and they will be answered, uh, hopefully, during the next question and answer week. However, if you want to make absolutely sure that your questions get answered, you're going to want to send them to, uh, you're going to want to call them in today at 877-772-9658. First question of the day comes from Carol. Now, as longtime listeners know, Uh, We very much prefer it if you can tell us where you are writing from, because sometimes that changes the answer to the question. Uh, In this case, it does not, but um, I don't know where Carol's writing from. So uh, Carol says, I would like to get a property that I bought in my own name, out of my name, and into my business name. How do I do that? Do I just quick deed it? I I understand another way to do it is land trust, but I don't understand them well enough to know whether to do it that way or not. Okay, so Carol, you have you have used a term here that I have heard many, 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 many times in the real estate investing business. That is not an actual thing, and that is quick deed or quick claim deed. Q U I C K. That is not what it is called. It seems like it is what it should be called because, you know, people use it for like quick transfers. Like I'm, I'm getting divorced and I'm going to sign my part of my 
property over to my ex-husband, so I'm going to quick claim it, or I'm going to um, I'm going to just get rid of this property because the city's about to tear it down anyway. So I'm going to quick claim it to an investor. The actual term is quit claim, Q-U-I-T claim the property. And uh, what that means is, for those of you who aren't up on <laughs> all of your deed types, which I would say is probably most of the world, not all up on all their deed types, a quit claim deed is kind of the the lowest level of deed there is in the sense that, what, what does a deed do? It, it conveys interest in a property. And for instance, you'll, you've heard of, of warranty deeds or general warranty deeds. And the reason they're called that is because when you, when you sell somebody a property and you transfer it via a general warranty deed, what you are saying is, I warrant that the title to this property is clear going back to the beginning of time. And if it turns out not to be clear for some reason, I will defend the title, meaning I will pay to fix whatever problems there are. Now, that the reason that people buy title insurance is so that they don't have to actually pay to fix the title if there turns out to be a problem. So that's a, that's like a, a big, you know, I'm, I'm not only giving you the, the rights to the property, I'm saying all the rights are there and there's going to be nothing clouding it up. And then you've heard of like a limited warranty deed, which is something that says, well, the title, nothing, nothing has happened during my ownership of it that would have messed up the title. I'm not, I'm not going to warrant it back to the beginning of time, but I'll give you a limited warranty, which is as long as I have owned the property, nothing has, nothing is hanging out there that's going to that's going to, you know, be a lien or a, somebody else having interest in the property that you don't know about. A quit claim deed is like the opposite side of that. A quit claim deed says, "Look, I am not I'm not telling you anything. I'm not promising you anything about whether I even have any interest in this property, but if I do, it's now yours. I'm I am quit quitting my claim to you." So, quit claim deeds are sometimes used to do things like um Let's say that Mike here and I are brother and sister and um, our parents pass away and they leave us a property, but Mike lives in Thailand and he's like, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't care. I don't want to, you know, give me, give me a hundred bucks and I'll just deed my, my interest in it over to you. So we're, we're like recombining the interests that got broken up when our parents died and we each got half of this property. He might use a quick claim deed to do that. There's no special reason to, because he could use a general warranty deed, but a lot of times a seller will feel more comfortable with a quick claim deed because they just figure this is their way of saying, don't blame me if anything's wrong. What you're suggesting doing is to using a quick claim deed to transfer interest from yourself to a, you say a business, I'm assuming that's an LLC, a limited liability company, that I assume you also fully own. So absolutely no reason not to use a quick claim deed. I mean, if you're, if you're very comfortable that you're not going to rip off your business in the future by having not told yourself that you have issues with the title that you may or may not know about. There's no reason not to use a quit claim deed. There's no special reason to use one either, because I'm sure you'd be willing to warrant the deed to yourself as your business. Now, the one thing that you need to be aware of is in some places with some title companies, a property that has been conveyed with a quit claim deed in a previous transference, sometimes it's hard to get title insurance on the next conveyance. 
I've heard this. I've heard this about some states in the South that if you if you buy a property with a quick claim deed or a tax deed, like you bought it at a tax sale or you did a tax lien foreclosure, that so you buy it and you know you're getting kind of an icky deed, but then when you try to sell it, title companies sometimes won't. Even in, even though they've done title search, they sometimes won't. Uh, issue title insurance to the buyer. So that's a reason, I don't know where you're from, but that's a reason I can think of that you might just want to go ahead and general warranty deed it to yourself. It doesn't cost any more to draw up a general warranty deed than it does a quick claim deed. It doesn't cost any more to go down and do the transfer. In fact, if you are the 100% owner of your business and you live in a reasonable state, you're just going to fill out a form that says, I don't actually have to pay transfer tax because this is just me changing the title. This isn't a real sale. Um, no reason not to do a general warranty deed. The land trust issue that you're that you're asking about, um, I, you said you didn't want to do you want to do it this way until you were able to understand the land trust. That's just a kind of an intermediary step. If you were to move the property, deed the property, just like we just talked about, deed it into a land trust. And then you can change and the, initially, typically the land trust would have you as the beneficiary. And then you use a separate document, an assignment of beneficial interest and trust, to change the beneficiary from you to your business. That is uh, sometimes considered to be like a more private way of doing it so that people don't connect you with your business, right? They don't they don't say, oh, well, Carol must own Carol LLC because there was a $0 transfer and... Usually that means we just changed titles, right? So if you do if you do it a land trust first, everyone's going to say, well, Carol's the trustee, Carol's the beneficiary. It's exactly what we'd expect. What they don't know is that Carol's company is now the beneficiary because you did that transfer. So a uh, good question, Carol. Thank you for sending it in to askvina at gmail.com. Uh, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll answer your questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means I'm sitting here waiting for your questions at 877-772-9658 or via email at askvina at gmail.com. Remember, you can always keep in touch with Real Life Real Estate through our website at realliferealestate.com. In addition to about 200 old shows, not old, not antique, um, premium uh, shows <laughs> up there on the site that you can download to your to your iPhone or whatever phone, I suppose. Uh, there's also usually an offer uh, for our listeners this week. It is a free webinar tomorrow night about how to take a very small IRA and use real estate investing to grow it into a larger IRA and do that very, very quickly. Uh, all you have to do to sign up for that is go to realliferealestate.com. That's realliferealestate.com. And you will see right up there at the top of the page, there is a, uh, a little form and just put in your name and email address and it'll get you registered and you will get a link to join that webinar tomorrow night at eight o'clock. So, uh, other questions that are popping up here in the inbox from um, 
askmina at gmail.com. Uh, this one is from Alton in Westchester. Yay, Alton said where he was from. That's Westchester, Ohio, by the way, not Westchester, New York, for those of you who are listening online at wmkvfm.org. He says, what do you think of turnkey rental properties? Just a general comment. Do you think this is a good strategy for a person close to retirement with very limited time to search for deals? I'm still working nine hours a day with a company traveling out of town on company business. Second part is, so you think buying rental properties inside a directed IRA, oh, I imagine this is supposed to say, do you think that buying rental properties inside a self-directed IRA is an option if you have a short investment time horizon? Thank you very much. Okay. So asking what I think of turnkey properties is like asking what I think of dogs, because there's good dogs and bad dogs. There's friendly dogs and mean dogs. There's big dogs and small dogs. There's Smelly dogs and not smelly dogs, you know, it, it, there's it, the, conceptually the idea that I'm going to go out and buy a property that has already been fixed up. It's already been stabilized. It's already been tenanted, right? Somebody's somebody's living there. It's being managed for me it is not a terrible option, especially for folks who don't have a lot of time to run around and beat the bushes for great deals. And also who don't um, don't necessarily have the time to do the rehab or management. There are some really bad turnkey rental providers out in the world. And that's how most people buy their turnkey rentals, is they find a company that, or the company finds them, that goes out and does this for a living. Buys, buys properties inexpensively, fixes them up puts tenants in them, sells them for full price. You expect to pay full price for a turnkey rental property and then manages them. Um, there are some great companies out there. There are some that uh, just, they just do horrible things. Um, it is possible, Alton, to make a property look rehabbed that is not actually stabilized. It is possible to do things to cover up problems. It is possible to um, make things look pretty that don't actually work. Um, the examples that I have seen would curl your hair. Um, I bought a, I bought a property that an out of state owner, it was an owner from New York, had bought from a local turnkey rental company, and they were told that it was 100% stabilized. They were told you don't you're not going to have to worry about anything in this property for 10 years. They never looked at it. They got, I'm sure they got pictures or whatever, but they never looked at it. When I went to see it, I discovered that they had a 25-year-old furnace that somebody had sanded down and spray-painted with silver paint so it looked pretty new, but that furnace was on its last legs. They had a leak in the roof that had been painted over, so on the inside, paint, paint had been used to cover up the fact that there was a leak in the roof, but of course it came back through again. Um, it had all sorts of problems. The The seller just did the most basic minor work that they could do to make pictures look good. So unsurprisingly, these folks paid full retail pro- price for this property and then discovered that they needed to do another $10,000 worth of work to it. And that was why they were selling to me. Um, and their problem number two was that their turnkey rental provider who was managing the property was not a very good manager and was not collecting the rent or putting people in who could pay the rent. I actually think that if you're willing to pay full price for properties, Alton, you would be better off even with your limited time in 
just going out and finding a property that a seller has for sale and getting your own experts involved in evaluating it. Your real estate agent, get a property inspection, get a termite inspection, um, get an appraisal, right? Get, get folks to help you to determine how all of this works because one of the very common things in the turnkey business, and I'm not, I'm not even criticizing this, this is good salesmanship, is that you are often told you need to, we've already done all of this. We've already gotten the appraisal. We've already gotten the inspection. We've already gotten this and that. But if you want this property, which is a, you know, 25% return, uh, you need to pull the trigger right away because it's going to go. And you, you get kind of pressured into doing something that you have not gotten your own experts involved in. A good turnkey seller, by the way, will, if you say, I want my own appraisal and inspection, will say, that's fine, just do it fast. They won't say, well, why would you need to do that? We've already had it done. What, are you afraid to pull the trigger, Alton? What's the matter with you? Are you a real buyer, Alton? Because I'm starting to think that you're not a real buyer. I'm starting to think that maybe you can't afford this house. See the kind of pressure that they can put on you? So I think if you... If you just sort of, you know, spent a weekend going around, do you tell an agent what you're looking for? Spend a weekend going around, find something that's already pretty close to stabilized or stabilized. Pay full price or something close to it, but not over full price, which is what folks actually do in turn in the cases of turnkey rental. Sometimes you will be fine, and then hire a property manager to manage it to you for you. Now let's talk about expected returns, because I have seen endless advertisements from turnkey providers that are claiming returns on on middle-end bread and butter houses so houses you wouldn't you wouldn't mind if your kid went and lived in when they first got married decent school system middle of the road price range reasonably safe neighborhood all that kind of stuff and the turnkey providers are putting out these you know, advertisements on the internet saying this house has a return of 18%, 25 25%, um, 15%. And that is typically a manipulation of the numbers. And if you think about it for a minute, Alton, you will say, it does seem a little strange that I would do no work to find the deal. I would do no work to fix the deal. I would do no work to qualify the tenant. I would do no work to manage the tenant. And yet I would be able to get a 25% cash on cash return when I paid cash for the house. Doesn't that sound a little too good to be true? 25% returns happen in really dingy neighborhoods. And they happen when you buy the house under market, not when you pay full price on it realistic returns if you're having somebody else manage the property and you're not counting imaginary appreciation. If you're going to buy here in Cincinnati, Alton, then I would suggest you do that. There's no, there's no grass is greener. Cincinnati is the perfect place for you to buy a turnkey rental. Um, you're talking about, you're talking about neighborhoods like Fairfield, for instance, has some, has some nice bread and butter houses. People do want to rent there. It's good stuff. It's a good good place to good place to rent. But um, lost my train of thought on what I was telling you. Just don't expect expect on a managed property in an area like that where somebody's taking ten percent of your money and you cannot be guaranteed appreciation because you live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and any appreciation you get is going to be, unless you get really lucky, it's going to be 
inflationary appreciation. It's going to, it's going to, yeah, it'll be worth 7% more next year, but that's because inflation went up 7%. We don't live in San Diego or San Francisco. A good return on a turnkey rental is realistically like four or 5%. If you are leveraging it, if you're putting down 20% and leveraging the rest, it, it, it can be higher. Um, I don't see too many there still that are above 10, 11 or 12%. And the way the way a lot of these providers get to the numbers is they leave out real expenses. They say, well, Alton, the thing is, we just stabilized the house, so you're not going to have to do anything for, for the next 10 years. So other than just turnovers, there will be no maintenance. So we don't need to include any maintenance. Well, you know what? <laughs> yeah, the roof is new, but in 10 years, it'll be 10 years old, and it'll be a third of the way through its life. The furnace is new, but in 10 years, it'll be 10 years old, and it'll be two thirds of the way through its life and you're, you're, you're five years from needing a new furnace. And if you haven't put any money aside for that, for those capital expenditures, then you've made a mistake. You've just been eating the money that belongs to the house. So I, I know the numbers look really compelling. You're like, I don't see what they left out. What they left out was replacement reserves. So your second question was buying rental property inside a self-directed IRA on a short investment time horizon. Uh, please, Alton, don't tell me you're one of those people It's like, I'm going to be dead in 10 years. Because, you know, people live to be like 90 and 100 years old all the time anymore. So if you're 65 or 70, you could have 20 or 30 years ahead of you where you have to figure out how you're going to live, despite the fact that the U.S. dollar is decreasing in value every year. Uh, don't assume you have a short investment horizon. Um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't not do anything in my IRA because I was older. Now, if, if it's a traditional, you may you may be in a position where you have to start taking money out soon. But if it's a Roth, you never have to take money out. So that would be another consideration. Do I want to convert to a Roth before I start doing this? Just pay the taxes. Alton, you might want to check out the uh, free webinar that we're offering for Real Life Real Estate listeners tomorrow night. Go to realliferealestate.com. Look at the top. It says how to build a small IRA into a big one. Click on that. Put in your name and email address and you'll get sent a registration. Seems like it might be up your alley. Thanks for the question. If you have a question for Real Life Real Estate Investing, send it like Alton did to askvina at gmail.com or else give us a uh, phone call at 877-772-9658. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. I'm just like talking to myself in the mic today because all the questions are coming in via email at askvina at gmail.com. So I'm just like having having a talk with myself here. If you have questions that you would like to ask, you can do it that way. I'm, I'm fine with talking to myself. I'm one of my favorite conversational companions. Or you can also call 877-772-9658. I got a text from Matt who suggests that we call the 200 podcasts on realliferealestate.com uh, classics or alternatively greatest hits. <laughs> classic shows are greatest hits. Uh, all right. So... Um, question from Benjamin who has a whole bunch of uh, he's got like letters behind his name and one of them says Prince 2 and I don't know what that means I don't know if that's if he's a prince or that's like I don't know a video game award but anyway he looks like he's from he looks like he's from Indianapolis from his phone number he says 
I am curious about how you approach the marketing of lease options to end buyers when you are an invest an investor. Basically, how would you market the contract and not the property? I currently do not possess a real estate license, but I'm very interested in the lease option strategy. The only thing I can think of was using a lease option as an exit on seller finance acquisitions. Any information is greatly appreciated. You're one of the few gurus I would trust. Oh, isn't that nice? I don't really think of myself as a guru, though, because those are people who sit at the top of the mountain and make pronouncements. And I think half of my job is explaining to people why they're either asking the wrong question or the answer is it depends. And I don't think gurus say that. I don't think you're like, oh, Swami, what is the meaning of your li- of life? And you're, the Swami's like, it depends. I mean, you'd want your money back, right? So anyway, I think uh, based on th- this actually, this question actually came in in June. And I'm going to say that it's probably uh, from Matt Reed's, from the day we did uh, Matt Reed's show, because that was a pre-recorded show, which would explain why I didn't get it on the day of the show. And just to be clear, Matt Reed is buying properties. He's actually closing on them. He's got private lenders who give him the money at 6% interest plus. uh, He gives them a little kicker, a little profit kicker when the deal closes. And then he is doing renovations and then he is reselling So uh, on lease options. So it's not a question of like, marketing a lease option. He's actually marketing a property saying, I got a property. And if you want to lease it with an option to buy, here are the terms. By the way, he is doing an all day seminar for Cincinnati Rhea this Saturday, Benjamin. And if you are in fact in Indianapolis, like I think you are, it would be worth the two hour drive for you to come over and check that out. And you can find out more information about it at CincinnatiRhea.com. That's CincinnatiREIA.com. Um, so, so it's not, I I think what you are thinking is that he is buying on lease option and then also selling on lease option, which is also a thing. It's called a sandwich lease, but what you are marketing in that case is still not, it's not, I have this deal with Mike here that says I can lease his property for a hundred or for a thousand dollars a month for the next 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, I have the right to buy it at $100,000. So that would be my lease option with the seller. And then I'm turning around and going to you, Benjamin, and saying, hey, would you like to take over the deal I have with Mike? That's not what happens in a sandwich lease. What happens in a sandwich lease is there's two separate agreements. I've got the one with Mike. And then I have one with you that says you are going to pay me, not Mike, me, $1,200 a month, for five years, and then at the end of five years, you have the right to buy it for $105,000. So the, the profit, of course, is in the spread between what I owe Mike at any given time and what you owe me at any given time. There is a third option that if you went way back in the archives on Real Life Real Estate, you might have heard about, and that was uh, what's called a lease option assignment And that is a deal wherein I make an agreement with Mike. I'm going to give him $1,000 a month for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, I can buy his house for $100,000. And I literally assign that to you, Benjamin. You you give me five grand or something and just step into my shoes and I step out. And now your deal is with Mike. 
the reason I say you would have had to look back in the archives for that is that that was a that was a really popular strategy back when half the people in America had no equity in their homes. And you didn't want to commit to making payments long term on a property that you weren't sure which direction the value was going. And also, you already knew that Mike's $100,000 house was actually only worth 90 as it sat right now. And the whole the whole benefit of the lease option agreement was that it would be worth 100 for sure 10 years from now, we hope, right? Um, you don't see those being done nearly as often anymore because if there is equity in the deal, if if I can get Mike's house for 100 and it's worth 110 right now, I want to stay in the middle of that because I got another $10,000 coming at the end of the deal, right? So if you listen to if you listen to one of the old Ron Legrand shows or even um I think Joe McCall way back when was talking about those, uh Wendy Patton might have mentioned them, uh or if you were listening to a show with Ron back in I don't know when was he here April and and I I asked him why aren't you doing those anymore? And his answer was there's equity in properties now. So your your question is how would i approach marketing i think what you're asking is that last thing the lease option assignment how would i how would i approach marketing a lease option assignment and what you would do is you would say i have a lease option for sale because what you're selling is not really the property right you don't own the property you just have a lease on it with an option to buy what you are selling is in fact the the deal itself. So, uh, great question. I hope I translated it correctly. And again, you might want to consider going to CincinnatiRia.com and checking out the um, Matt Reed All Day seminar that is happening on Saturday. I will be there as well because that guy's done 200 lease options and I figure he's probably got something he can teach me about doing lease options even though I've done a few of them myself. So um, again, thanks for the question and uh, hopefully we will see you on Saturday. Uh, You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week as you may have worked out for yourself. That means that uh, there's no show without your questions. So if you have one, send it in. Send it to askvina at gmail.com or give us a call 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And that means that uh, whatever questions you have uh, are fair game today. And uh, a lot of folks are choosing to come in the um, the email way. I, I, always, I always picture that like folks are sitting at work hiding that they're listening to real life real estate because they don't want their boss to know that ultimately they kind of want to quit their job and uh that they're like they're like sneaking it and that's why i get a lot of emails instead of a lot of phone calls or i suppose well no people in their car should not be sending emails uh but that's fine just send it to askvina at gmail.com um got a couple of questions that have come in here via email oh this is uh, sort of sort of related to the one, the one we just talked about um this is from sean does not say where he is he says 
I know two people who have walked away from their homes because they owe more than the house, house is worth, but I can't been I can't get any information about the property. One is fairly recent, the other one has been a while. Is there a way to find out what bank is holding the mortgage and somehow strike a deal with them? Um, Sean, again, super common question. Let's just have like an FAQ page up on real life real estate because this is. This is amongst the 20 most common questions that investors have about real estate. And your, your question is basically, you know of two houses. You said, you said you know two people who've walked away from their house, but if you knew the people, you'd be able to get information on it. So what you know is, you know there are two houses that folks have deserted, they've moved out of. You know that they are over leveraged. You know they owe more to the bank than what their property is worth. And your question is, how do you go, because you can't get in touch with the sellers, how do you go to the bank and say to them, look, you know, you're, you got a $160,000 loan on this house. It's only worth 90. Why don't you sell it to me for 90? And the answer is you can't because, and, and if you, I'm going to, I'm going to explain explain this to you in some detail so that next time this question comes up, you can just, you can sort of think through the logic of it. The bank doesn't own the property until after the foreclosure has happened, or of course, the, the there could also be a deed in lieu of foreclosure. Therefore, the bank can't strike a deal with you to sell you that house because it's not their house to sell. While it is in pre-foreclosure, only the owner can strike a deal with you. So what you need to do is double down on tracking down that owner and on convincing him that you can in fact help because the fact that you said that they have walked away um, tells me that they've they've kind of thrown their hands up. They've they've maybe tried some things. They've tried a loan modification. They maybe they listed it and it didn't sell. Um, they, they've just thrown their hands up. They don't see getting anything out of this. And so they are just not going to do anything. And that that is like one of the hardest things to overcome. You know, we talk about sellers are motivated or unmotivated. When somebody has basically taken the position of, eh, I'm just not going to think about it anymore. It's, it's actually kind of hard to wake them up and say, do you really want to do that? I mean, do you know what a foreclosure does for your credit? A short sale doesn't do great things for it, but a foreclosure is worse. So maybe we should try and work this out with the bank. It's hard, hard to get them to respond. So, but, and yet that's the only way you're going to get the deal. Unless there's one exception. If the bank is a small one or it is a, um, a defaulted note buyer, which in, in that case you would probably see that it didn't say bank or savings and loan. It would probably say something like, you know, um, Mortgage Solutions Inc. or something like that. Uh, private lender, defaulted note buyer, small bank. You could, if you had the knowledge to do this, try to go to the bank and buy the mortgage. Now, again, that's you. You got. So we don't have. We don't have time in ten shows <laughs> to explain all the ins and outs of that, but. If you bought the mortgage, then you would be the bank and you could go do a workout with the owner or get a deed in lieu of foreclosure or foreclose on it. 
but that that that's not going to work if the, it's like Bank of America or something like that. They're not selling you a mortgage. They would sell you a thousand mortgages if you had ten million dollars, but they're not going to do uh, anything creative like that with you. So, again, in summary, go find the seller. Uh, let's see. A uh, question here from Eric. Uh, who is from New Jersey. Hey, yay, Eric, thank you. Uh, says, in one of your home study course CDs, or maybe it was your radio show, I heard you mention a form that you have your seller sign stating that you disclose that you're a licensed real estate broker. I wondered if you can share that form or if it could be included in some form, in some uh, course. Okay, so, uh, boy, Eric, I'd love to sell you that form, but um, you don't need me to because it is a form that every state provides to every real estate agent in that state. It is called an agency disclosure form. And I assuming you're a an agent or you wouldn't be asking these questions. Uh, your broker has one. I mean, you've seen them a million times, right? They say what they say on them is, um, Hey, buyer and seller, you understand that these other people in the deal who are the agents are working for whom, right? There's boxes to check. This agent works for the seller. This agent works for the buyer. One agent works for both. One agent works for neither. That's the form I'm talking about. And as a licensed agent, you need to be filling those out with every person you come in contact with, even when you're, even when you've got that hat on where you're buying properties for yourself, as opposed to listing them um the the way you fill it out's a little bit different when you are the landlord or the buyer or the seller or whatever because what what you do is you put yourself into the position of the represented party so if you're buying a property you along with the purchase contract you need to give the seller an agency disclosure form that says eric is the buyer Eric is the agent. Eric the agent is working for Eric the buyer and he is not working for you the seller. Okay, because you got to be clear about who you represent. You you learned this in principles and practices class, however long enough. That's however long ago that was for you. Um, It's just a little bit different way of filling it out. And you already know that you have to tell everybody that you're a real estate agent. Tenants, buyers, sellers. Again, even if you're working on your own behalf. Okay, question here from Rod. He says, I've watched many of the YouTube videos of you and other real estate educators. I keep hearing from you and everyone else that all investors think their market is too saturated. Well, I went to my first RIA meeting last night, and the first thing I was told by one of the leaders was that there are approximately 600 people trying to do the same thing I am here in Raleigh, which is wholesaling. Do you have any thoughts on how you can determine if a city or the surrounding area is in fact a good market for wholesaling? I am not defeated, as I realize that many of those 600 will not take any action. Just looking for some practical steps I might take to evaluate the wholesaling market here. Any thoughts? Well, Rod, I have thoughts on just about everything, and especially uh, this question, because as you point out, the fact that there are 
a thousand people trying to do anything in a given area or that there are hundreds of people at your real estate meeting, which there are. Last time I was in Raleigh, there were 225 people at the evening meeting. It was amazing. It was humongous. It was fantastic. That doesn't mean that anybody's actually doing anything. I mean, you, you can look around you and say, well, here's all these people saying they're doing or trying to do or whatever, or any of them actually pulling the trigger. And the answer is, uh, in my experience, probably one out of five is, is actually doing anything that would lead to them doing any kind of deal. Wholesaling, retailing, notes, apartments, I don't care. There's 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 studying it and there's talking about it and there's being excited about it. And then there's talking to sellers and making offers and evaluating properties and looking for deals. And only about one out of five is actually doing those things. So that's, that's issue number one. Specifically uh, in regards to wholesaling though, I can make an argument for the pros and cons of wholesaling in every single market in the United States. Raleigh is a somewhat uh, expensive, somewhat hotter than average market. It's not San Francisco, but it's not Akron either. What that means is you are going to have buyers knocking your doors down for deals and there is more profit potential in each deal because your, your house prices are higher and you are going to be able to command a little bit higher than typical wholesale percentage for your properties. So here in Cincinnati right now, we're wholesaling deals at about around 72 to 75 cents on the after repaired value, less repair costs. In Raleigh, you might be able to get people to, educated people, so people who know what they're doing, to cheerfully pay you 78 or 79 cents on the dollar because it's something of a hot market. Take a market that's very depressed, like uh, Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, a lot of, still a lot of abandoned properties. You can barely tell in the city of Youngstown that the recession has ended. Um, uh, not a lot of real high paying jobs there. Uh, rents are low. House prices are low. So it has the disadvantage that if you are trying to wholesale there, you are literally selling houses sometimes that have an after repaired value of $35,000. If everything were done to that house, it would only be worth $35,000. So you're not going to make ten or 20000 bucks on a wholesale deal. You're just not. But on the other hand, my students up there who are wholesaling, who are, who are reaching out to sellers, are getting incredible rates of return on their marketing. They're getting these crazy, you know, 5 and 10% response rates on marketing they, that, that they're doing because the sellers there are not being saturated with marketing. So they're going to make less money on each deal. They might make more deals. Um, it's going to be a little harder to sell properties up there because there are so many good deals. They will not be able to sell them for 80 cents on the dollar. I'd say in Youngstown, you probably got to be at 65 to 70 cents on the dollar. So the grass is not greener someplace else. I mean, I just, I, if you're talking about wholesaling or you're talking about retailing, the grass is not greener. Um, rental property is a little bit different thing because there are just places in the country where you cannot buy rental properties at a price where they will um, they will cash flow if you pay cash for them. So 
that is my considered opinion on whether wholesaling works in Raleigh or not. Uh, here is an interesting question that I got from, actually I can't even tell who this one is from, I just have an email address. He says, oh, just closed the email here, let me open it back up again. Is it normal for a wholesale buyer to try to negotiate my price down further than what I've already offered or are the best buyers always okay with price? Either they buy at that price or they don't buy at all. Um, that is that is such an interesting question. And the answer, it depends. If what you're asking is, is it normal for a, remember, investor buyer whose return is based on how much does he pay for a property to try and get a better price than what you're offering him? Of course it is. You know, everybody's gonna, gonna, gonna make a run at it. Um, is it normal for them to make you like a counter offer if they think your price is wrong? Uh, the, the impression I got of your question is, you're saying it's not that the price is wrong, it's that they're trying to get an even better deal. Yeah, they're gonna try it. But if you say, look, I mean, the deal is, this is the price and if you don't want it, that's fine, I'll close it. Uh, <sighs> they're going to buy it if it's a good deal. If it's not a good deal, and that's that's what I'm worried about here is, are they trying to negotiate it down because they don't like the price? Are they coming to you and saying, no, it's only worth this much fixed up, not as much as you think it is, and it's going to cost more to fix it up than you think it is? In that case, you probably do need to reevaluate your asking price and possibly what you have offered. Um, when wholesalers sell me properties, I almost always uh, I'm asking for a lower price than they're offering. Occasionally someone just offers me a property at a price that I just, I, it's irresistible, I have to take it. Um, you can set the policy for your own business because I can tell you that my wholesale buyers do not bother to try and negotiate the price because they know I'm right. <laughs> they know what I, my repair costs are right and my after repaired value is right. And they know that if they don't want it at that price, I'm just going to sell it to somebody else. And that's, that's a policy that I've built up over many years and just trained my buyers that that's the way it is. So thank you for your question. Question and answer week is over for another month. And we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing. 